Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. And today it is our pleasure to welcome Ben Peterson from our sister podcast over at Latter-day Peace Studies. Come follow me to join us on the program today as we discuss a topic that both of us on both all of us use on both of these podcasts that are affiliated with Latter-day Peace Studies, and that is hermeneutics. And uh, hermeneutics is an approach to interpretation of scripture that helps us to understand things in new light. And so we're going to hopefully bring some new light to you, the listener, as we discuss this topic and open open our thoughts and, and minds around this idea of uh, interpretation of scripture in ways that bring new light and knowledge to us. And so maybe I'll start off by, you're the language guru, Chris, give us maybe a brief or basic etymology or origin story of what hermeneutics is about? Could you do that? So the the definition of hermeneutics is just the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially when it comes to biblical or, or literary texts, you know, the Bible or literary texts. In terms of where the word comes from, it's it's from the late 17th century, from the Greek hermeneutikos, from hermenuein, which is to interpret. So it's just about how we interpret the scriptures. It's the lens through which we see or read the scriptures. It's how we interpret the scriptures. And so that that means we have to distinguish it from exegesis, right? I guess one thing I would say quickly, because you use the word lens, is that I think everyone approaches scripture, regardless of whether they're conscious of it or not, with a lens. And it, it's their own, you know, experiential lens or filter that they've, uh, you know, that they've acquired over years of personal, individual experience, relational experience, or experience with reading scriptures or how they were taught. So everyone approaches scriptural interpretation with some kind of lens. I think the difference is, is when you apply a hermeneutic, like mindfully apply something, you're, you're stepping slightly outside of your own personal natural filter or lens and applying something that's going to help you obtain maybe a little extra light or knowledge, something different. But that does that ring true for you guys? Yeah, I'd say that that's pretty accurate. You know, it's it's a deliberate, conscious um, effort to apply a particular, you know, metaphorical lens to how we interpret scripture, as opposed to what what may just um, present itself to us spontaneously from from our own experience. So to set that apart from exegesis which is essentially coming up it's 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 kind of like testing a hypothesis almost you you're diving into the scriptures using evidence and from that evidence deriving some kind of uh solution or uh not solution um conclusion about what that means right 
Exegesis comes from, also from Greek, from ex means out of, hegestai, to guide or lead. Exegestai means to interpret. So we haven't, at this point, we're saying that hermeneutics and exegesis are both about interpretation, but hermeneutics is about the lens, and this is about how you now then explain the scriptures. And so your exegesis is going to be based on your hermeneutics, if that makes sense. Okay. 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 So one one helps to develop the other. Yeah, it's your it's your hermeneutic again. It's the lens through which you look at the scriptures, and so then out of that, and there's the X out of that comes your interpretation, your exegesis. And so it's yeah, your your exegesis is dependent upon your hermeneutic in some sense. And it, it ne- not it need not necessarily be something that you personally have affinity with or agree with it's just something that comes out of that lens that you've applied the exegesis comes out of that lens that you've applied whether or not you agree with it it's just you're trying to arrive at various or different conclusions based on this this lens or filter that you've put the scriptures through correct that's a good point yeah which that that to me makes it more valuable because if I'm trying to open my mind and and see new perspectives and come to different conclusions than I would naturally, applying these hermeneutics to the scriptures is going to allow me to do that if I will be humble enough to let it. I think that's a good point you make there, that it's, it, it is an exercise in humility. Because when we're presented with, with a particular hermeneutic that, you know, may not, we might be skeptical of at first, its value. Um, but we were willing and we're humble enough to, to say, Hey, I know someone that finds value in this. I'm going to use it and see, see what presents itself to me when I take this lens and I look through it, what do I see? And so, yeah, I think, I think the humility is, is a good part of that there. Open mind. You know, this is something, this is a, a method that could be used just in life in general, not necessarily only scriptures, you know, one of the things that gets a lot of flack these days, for better or worse, maybe for good reason, is critical race theory. Well, critical theories in general are theories that are meant to kind of challenge you and challenge assumptions. And again, the only way that you'll get any benefit at all is if you're willing to be meek and humble in the process of approaching that and what comes out of it. Now, in the final analysis, like I said before, you may disagree with all of the conclusions on a personal level, and you may have very good reason for doing that. But entertaining the process is a way for you to at least be open-minded about it and maybe understand where other people are coming from, if nothing else. Yeah, you know, it occurs to me to give uh, an example. I think we can say this is an example of a hermeneutic. As Christians, whenever we read Christ into the Old Testament, and we get that kind of exegesis where we interpret what's written in the Old Testament as having something to do with with Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, that's as a result of a hermeneutic, a Christian hermeneutic. The Old Testament to a Jew is, is not the Old Testament. It's the Jewish Bible. It's just the Bible. And, and she doesn't read it that way. Right. Yeah. Get, I mean, a, a specific example of that might be you know, a passage that you read in the Old Testament, for instance, uh, when when you read the passage as a Christian, that Emmanuel 
is is to be born to a, a virgin and all this. Okay, well, Emmanuel means God with us, and and that fits very nicely into this this hermeneutic that is being applied, the Jesus hermeneutic of reading the Old Testament. But for someone who's coming from a different background or perspective, that that makes no sense. So I think that that's a that's a valid point. But again, I guess we I would fall back on that the original thing I said, which is if if you want to try to expand your perspectives and what's available and you can approach things with an open mind, again, whether you agree or disagree with it, you're going to get some different conclusions if you apply these hermeneutics. So they're, they're valuable and useful tools. They may not confirm your suppositions. So for instance, a Jew applying the Jesus hermeneutic to the Old Testament, it's not going to confirm their, their presuppositions about what the Hebrew scriptures are but it, it will provide insight into how Christians view the Hebrew scriptures. So would it be uh, a good time for us then maybe to discuss some of the hermeneutics that we're familiar with or that we've used in the past, either on the show or just in our private study or a group study and give examples of how this can work for people. We, I mean, we kind of laid out the, the very basic Jesus hermeneutics, seeing the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures through the lens of a Christian but what if we were to narrow it down even more and, and take a more specific uh, targeted approach or hermeneutic to those those Old Testament books? One of them that's popular that uh, there are, well, there's a book written about it now, is this cross vision that uh, Gregory Boyd has has very, I, I think he's an innovator, you know, in, in that community of, I, I, went, I don't know, I'm not even sure if he's an evangelical, but I... I assume that he came from that tradition and he, he comes up with this innovative hermeneutic called the cruciform hermeneutic. What can you guys tell us about that? So this is, uh, was the beginning for me of a conversation about how to read the Bible. Well, I can't really, I shouldn't say it was the beginning of the conversation about how to read the Bible nonviolently, because in fact I had read from John Dominic Crossan, how to read the Bible and still be a Christian. And even before that, I had I had had to, had to question, right? I had to ask myself, how do I, how do I read the Bible and still be a Christian? How do I make sense of the violent God uh, on the face of it, right, in the Old Testament? And so Shiloh shared a book with me, the book you mentioned, Cross Vision by Gregory Boyd, where Gregory Boyd says, I'm going to take and I'm going to I'm going to measure up whatever is said by the Old Testament writers against Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross is the the actual representation that I have of what God is really like. This God that's willing to suffer and die rather than to be violent, you know. And so if if somebody in the Old Testament says God was violent, then I'm going to say okay, that's not true, right? I'm going to say he thinks that and and that would be according to his own time and place and cultural lens and milieu and all of that, his, his own context. But I have context beyond that, such that I know this is what God looks like. And when I say this, I mean Jesus on the cross. And so that's what Gregory Boyd, I think, means by cruciform hermeneutic. And so then we took that hermeneutic and we developed it further. We, we, we took that inspiration, I guess you could say, and we came up with our own hermeneutic, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yeah, so for if we're sticking with that for now with the with the cruciform hermeneutic that Greg Boyd put out in Cross Vision, 
the image of Christ on the cross is, is a self-sacrificing, loving, peaceful God. And so the attempt to reconcile everything in Scripture with that vision of, of who God is, and, and some of this assumes some theological premises that maybe resonate more with evangelicals than us. And for instance, the, the Trinitarian approach uh, that God and Christ are one, and we, t- we have some of that as well. I'm not going to totally distinguish that, but um, you know, essentially the inerrancy of, of biblical scripture um, and, and the need to reconcile as Latter-day Saints, we don't have that need necessarily to always reconcile everything in the scriptures with with the ideal because we don't believe in biblical inerrancy. So, yeah, go ahead. I I wonder though sometimes you know rather whether we whether that's true you know whether so it seems that Latter Day Saints really do struggle with the the seemingly violent God of the Old Testament. And or or they maybe worse from from my point of view at least they actually accept the idea that God could be this violent petty person or this violent petty God. Um, so because and they and they don't or they do try to recon, reconcile or they don't what is it and and they don't try to reconcile the the New Testament love your enemies you know the the teachings of Jesus Christ with this idea of the Old Testament. And so things are explained away. God can do these things. Whereas what Boyd is doing, I don't, I don't know that he's actually accepting the inerrancy of, of the scriptures. I think what Gregory Boyd is saying is the prophets of the Old Testament say those things, but they're not actually true. And I'll give you an example from the Book of Mormon. This is something that, that I don't remember if we talked about this on the podcast, I remember talking about it in in our Come Follow Me study group uh, during the the lockdown period of the pandemic, and that is this idea that that God tells Nephi to kill Laban, and so I would read that in a, in in the in this cruciform hermeneutic or in, or in my beatitudinal hermeneutic that we haven't gone into yet, and I would say Nephi thinks that or Nephi says that because he doesn't even have to think it. There are, there are multiple possible possible interpretations. Nephi says that, but that doesn't mean that's the case. And so one interpretation, just to give a a sense, now this is exegesis, right? If I'm going to take my hermeneutic and I'm going to go into this verse, then what's my exegesis? Well, turns out that this is the kind of story that you might tell as a sort of a founding myth, so to speak, that says something about, that, that, that tells some kind of story about how you, how things came to be the way they came to be. And that isn't necessarily meant to be taken literally. You know, the the ancient writers didn't write history the way we do. I can give you another example. Well, before you do, Chris, if, I don't, if you don't mind, I, I think two points. One, I don't think that Latter-day Saints approach the need or or not need to reconcile scriptures with that Christian ideal based on scriptural inerrancy. I think they feel it because... There's examples of it in the Book of Mormon, as you've pointed out here, in the Doctrine and Covenants. I mean, just last week in section 133, verse 51, that whole like vengeful God coming to, you know, crush the wicked under his feet and the blood is being spread on his garments, like just some wicked, harsh language right there. So it's I think that's the part that 
for them, they feel, okay, we need to reconcile this because there's examples in our Latter-day scriptures, not just in the in the Bible, that I don't think they approach it from the, the inerrancy perspective. That's just my opinion on that. What I love about what you're saying in, in the Nephi example is that, you know, if you look at a lot of these these founding myths of the divine right of whoever that king is, a lot of them come attached to some event that establishes their authority or credibility as the rightful king, prophet, you name it. And in this particular case, it's coming by these plates, these scriptures. That becomes the founding I, I don't want to call it a myth, but that's the founding event that establishes Nephi's legitimacy. Well, let's remember, myth is just uh, a fancy word for story, right? Myth from the Greek mythos is just story, right? This is the story of how things became or came to be the way they are. And again, keeping in mind that the way ancient writers write history or myth or story is not the same way that we do. They don't think about history the way, do we, the way that we do. So to give another example, there's the idea that the Israelites forcefully invaded Canaan and took over. And the problem with that is that there's no, not only is there no archaeological evidence that, that has been found to support that, but archaeological evidence has been found to negate it. So what seems to be going on here, at least one possible interpretation, is that this is a story that the Israelites told about themselves when they actually peacefully moved into the, the land of Canaan and took over uh, or cohabitated, actually coexisted with the people who were already there, is that it's they're putting the story out there as a deterrent. Don't mess with us. We're the ones who came in here and, and took over violently. So it's kind of like having a nuclear weapon as a deterrent. Yeah, and that was actually something that was used uh, on occasion by other tribes and uh, cultures that surrounded that that Semitic that Semitic tribe of Hebrews. Uh, there was other tribes doing the same thing, putting out their 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 stories of how heroic and and uh, overwhelming their force is, and, and it was meant as a deterrent, just as you said. Right. There's precedent for this. So um, you guys brought up this this topic of of Nephi. I mean, it's this is often a question, one of the principal question that comes up because when when the topic or the idea of a nonviolent hermeneutic gets presented, especially in light of the Book of Mormon. Um, there's others, but um, I would say the story of Nephi, you know, from the perspective of a Latter-day Saint that's read this in the beginning of the book, seems like an airtight, uh, you know, an airtight evidence for dismissal of a nonviolent hermeneutic, right? And so it can be a very different, uh, difficult question to to wrestle with. And I've heard a lot of different people um, do it very well, you know, wrestle with it in very different ways. But uh, Chris, you're alluding to um, a a particular paper or talk given by, and, and I, I tried to find who it was. It might've been Kent Brown. Um, and what he does is he goes through and, and methodically analyzes Nephi's, the story of Nephi and his character compared to David and how David's character is presented in the Old Testament. And it is fascinating. I, we, I really need to find the article, and we can put it in the, the notes, but it, it's really fascinating. He goes through and he analyzes this and shows how um, it's pretty obvious that Nephi's whole story, his telling of his story, is a way that he is developing 
his authority as the Nephite king, right? And he's he's developing this um, based on the the myth, quote unquote myth, of da- of King David, which was considered as a legitimate king. And so Nephi can establish himself within that narrative, then it shows that he has legitimate kingship. Now, one of the interesting things about this is it's not obvious that Nephi is consciously doing this because it's so built into their culture and psyche that Nephi maybe can't help but present his story in this way, right? It's sort of akin to the the, the hero um, you know, the hero myth, right? Like this, this is how you tell a story. And it, it hearkens to David, which is, is the, uh, the Messiah King, right? Yeah, anointed, the anointed one, the prototype. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and, this... and, and so, so, you know, this, this, uh, presentation or paper or, or talk, whatever you might is, is extremely compelling. And the evidence, uh, gets, it gets absurd at some point because he's got he's got so many comparisons that after you read it you're like yeah that's exactly what's going on and and what's so fascinating about it is that it's like wow that is a really really powerful um, way of presenting this but it's not even the only way of viewing this story right it's it's one way to to present this hermeneutic and the the exegesis that you get from it is look, Nephi is developing a story in a certain way, and we don't have to take everything he says at face value because his purpose and audience and, and ends aren't, aren't exactly what we always think that they are. Well, one of the things that Mircea Eliade always talks about in his analysis of archetypes is that unless a story fits an archetype that we already accept culturally, um, it doesn't get remembered. Mm-hmm. And so by conforming his his authority, legitimacy story to the archetype that is understood within his culture and among his people, he ensures that the story gets remembered and gets repeated and passed down. Yeah, good point. You know, uh, you were Christopher, you were talking about how um, Latter-day Saints uh, view the Old Testament and they often use it, you know, the violence. And, and um, you know, Riley, you brought up a good point that, or was it Christopher, you said you don't think it's necessarily because of the inerrancy? Well, I, I, was, saying, inerrant? I, I was saying that Gregory Boyd doesn't actually seem to accept biblical inerrancy. His, he, Gregory he kind Boyd's of does. Interpretation he changes is, the definition. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen Rob Rob Bell does that a little bit too, but uh, I couldn't remember which one of you talked about how the Latter-day Saint approach isn't necessarily based on inerrancy. Was that you, Riley? That's Riley. Okay. So what I would say is that, um, you know, I've seen Latter-day Saints go different ways on that, and I I think that both those approaches are true. But what what I think is true in the Latter-day Saint tradition is there is room, there is definitely room when it comes to the Old Testament to say things like, yeah, but you know, that was probably translated incorrectly, right? Because we have that eighth article of faith. New Testament is not as much because, it, you know, for some reason within um, Latter-day Saint tradition, New Testament is not quite as, as criticized in that way, although it can be. But Old Testament, has a, there's a lot of wiggle room there, right, in, in Latter-day Saint approach to, to this 
standard work to this canonical scripture. And so I know for a long time, one of the ways that I approached it, because I didn't have these lenses, I didn't have these tools in order to to analyze the scripture in that way, I, I just wasn't ever given them, was was to say, because I couldn't make sense of it, you know, there's just a lot of stuff in there that I think is just not translated correctly, or we don't have the context to really understand what was going on. And so I was able to just kind of step back from it. But um, as I've as I've come across a lot of these other types of lenses, these hermeneutics to approach it with, it really has allowed me to to go in there and 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 mine that gold, so to speak. Right? You know, before it was like I I know there's something in there, but I can't get to it, and so I could, kind of could stay away from it. But these ways of approaching it really allows me to go in and 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 get that out and 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 bring it out and and examine it and understand it and profit from it you know yeah so i wanted to say just i think it helps maybe understand what greg boyd is up to even if i may have misread him a little bit i think this is important so i read greg boyd as saying just because the people in the ancient world thought that god was violent and responsible for whether it be even even force majeure, even acts of, of God that are these natural occurrences like the flood or wars, you know, it's especially wars. He, he goes into this idea of, okay, God, he, he posits a, a conversation, and this is me paraphrasing, where the people say, well, we, God is on our side, and, you know, our God is, Yahweh is our warrior God. And each tribe has their own God or their own gods. And Yahweh is the, the warrior God of the Israelites. Everybody has their warrior God. And so when they, when they fight and they win, it's because their warrior God, Yahweh, was on their side. Whereas Yahweh is saying, guys, I'm not your warrior God. I'm not a warrior God. Okay, I'm glad you're praying to me. Let's go ahead and let's keep this communication channel open. And I'll just kind of work with you and, and bring you along and hopefully eventually figure out who I really am. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is you're you're actually uh, you're exactly right about the article I was referring to, and that's Nephi and Goliath: A Case Study of Literary Illusion in the Book of Mormon, and that can be downloaded from the Maxwell Institute's Journal of Mormon uh, Book of Mormon Studies. Was that Kent Brown or is that someone else? It's the the author is actually Ben McGuire, but there are other. This is only one possible interpretation. I've seen others. This is this is a really compelling article, and it's as, it's also available from BookofMormonCentral.org. But again, it comes from it was published in the book journal of Book of Mormon Studies from BYU's Maxwell Institute. Well, I I think uh, I mean just positing that as as uh, as an example, right? Of of ways that. When you when you bring just this bit of context and understanding to a scriptural account, it completely sheds new light on the whole thing, you know, and and really brings out stuff that you hadn't considered before, um, and and that's that's what we're, you know, that's what we're after with these different hermeneutics is there are many many facets to every scripture and account and story. And understanding those through these different hermeneutics can can help us pull out meaning and understanding that we we may not have have gotten otherwise. So one of the books it does too is it forces you to look at things from from the conclusion rather than from the outset of things. So if you already know in applying this hermeneutic, you're gonna you're gonna set it up as a given that the way to look at this scripture is through this particular lens. If that's already your conclusion that the lens is correct, it forces you to read that scripture in that way and explore things that you and try to justify a way of interpreting that that makes sense 
in the context of that lens. And, and so those facets you talk about, they're not even going to be seen by someone unless they're totally pushed outside their natural limits of, of understanding and the filters and lenses they already have naturally until they're forced out of that by trying to conform with this hermeneutic. They, they wouldn't even see it. Yeah. And another theme that's related, you know, one of the books, uh, another book that I've read that's helped me to think about the, the Bible nonviolently is Rob Bell's What is the Bible? And another idea that's related to this in this conversation here is the idea that because when we have our hermeneutic and everybody, this is something we haven't said yet. Everybody has a hermeneutic, whether they realize it or not. The conversation we're in right now is having a chosen hermeneutic. We're actually intentionally choosing a hermeneutic and we're aware of the hermeneutic that we're using. And we realize, as you've said, Riley, that that this is it has opportunity and cost. It's going to we're looking for. It looks like proof texting, right? You're going to find the answer that you're looking for, but you also wouldn't be able to find that answer if it would be the case that it is the correct interpretation. Let's assume, for example, that that the interpretation we gave of of what Nephi is up to is correct. How would you ever get to that if you didn't try to see things this way? And so one of the things that that is related then to this conversation is this idea that if we think we already know what's going on, then we're not open to discovering what's going on. And so one of the things that Rob Bell really drives home in his book is that there's always more going on than what appears on the surface of things. And he pointed me to a book. There's a rabbi, I can't remember his name. If you guys remember his name, I know, Ben, you've recently read this book too, who has a, I don't remember how many interpretations either, many interpretations of a single verse. God was there and I didn't know it. And this is this is the the rabbinic tradition, right? This is a rabbi writing this book where you you turn the the verse and it's like a gem and it has all these facets and there are different ways that you can see it if you just turn it, just like the facets of a a gem reflect light in different ways. And so I went looking into who was this uh, author and I found a video on on YouTube. I shared it with both of you guys today. And this author points out that God creates the light in chapter one of Genesis, uh, sorry, in d- on day one, day one of, uh, of the creation. But the sun, the moon, and the stars don't show up until day four. And I thought, how could I have not, how did I not notice that? And I've seen stuff like this. I've found stuff like this on my own, but not this one. And so then it just makes you think, how many things am I missing? Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, right? So how did I not notice this? And so if we have this kind of humility that we've been talking about, of being open to Maybe there's more going on here than what I thought. Maybe it's not, I shouldn't even say it's not what's in the chapter heading, but it's not that that's the only possible interpretation, at least. One of the things I do is I don't read chapter headings. Chapter headings are not scripture. You know, they're not scripture. Be very careful with chapter headings. Yeah, I, I avoid yeah. them. I, I like the plague. I just don't read them. And I just look into the scriptures and I want to see for myself, what do they say? And to do this by, by the spirit of prophecy and revelation and in a sense of humility of not actually knowing what it says and of just trying on possibilities. Something you, th- this description of, that you're giving of how to spend time with a, a single passage of scripture is, is the essence of reading it contemplatively. It's spending the time to be in that moment and not feeling like you have to jump ahead or have the proper context, uh, whatever that means, proper. It, it's taking a specific verse 
and trying to see that from as many perspectives as possible and then letting the spirit inform you as to how that can hold meaning for you and and bring purpose to your reading of that scripture. To me, that's that's the awareness of contemplation. You've got to spend the time. And this was the point of the rabbinic tradition, you know, and in Judaism in general. So you go to the synagogue, they read the this week's reading, and that was decided probably years ago what this week's reading or, or day's reading is. And then the people, this is someone in the middle of the room and the people surrounding them, then wrestle with this. This idea of wrestling with God is applied to the actual script, to the word of God. You know, it's wrestling with it and just, and so you get all these possible interpretations and there's not this sense of there's only one right way to read this. You know, that concept of wrestling with it has has really, really comes out when you do apply a hermeneutic because, um, Anyway, I've just I've seen that with a lot of scriptures. You know, you have this lens, this nonviolent lens, and then what happens when you come to, you know, Third Nephi or First Nephi chapter four? What happens when you come to Third Nephi chapters nine and ten? What happens when you come to, you know, the war chapters in Late Alma? What do you what do you do with these things? And um, it's actually a very, um, very powerful exercise to go into that with that hermeneutic and and see what comes out of it. So, you know, we've alluded to this a bunch here um, with uh, with the different hermeneutics. One of the, I, I would say there's kind of like a, like branches and interrelated between all of these. You can kind of jump between them particular uh, things, but one of the ones that is, is more, more central and powerful is that of the Beatitudes. Before we and, uh, change hermeneutics, though, can I just bring up a point related yeah. to what, what you just said? Because when I ran into when I when I took on this hermeneutic, this nonviolent hermeneutic, and and the cruciform hermeneutic is only one nonviolent hermeneutic. We're going to go into the beatitudinal one. I I did have trouble when I ran when I went to read, and it says that you know Nephi that God told Nephi to kill Laban. And I just, having committed to the hermeneutic, I said, okay, I'm assuming that's not true. But it took me years to even to find the article that we mentioned earlier. But I was looking for it. You see, you have to be looking. If you're not looking, you're not going to find. Seek and you shall find. And, Hidden treasures, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just one other comment too. The, the book that I mentioned earlier, again, each chapter of this book is a different interpretation of this one verse, seven chapters, seven different interpretations. This is this is typical in the rabbinic tradition. So then there's our our beatitudinal hermeneutic. Yeah. So I mean, this comes from Matthew chapter five. We have this um, beginning statement from Christ's Sermon on the Mount, which is is put in a very poetic and an orderly way by Matthew when he writes the gospel. And there's a lot in here. It's it's a very dense uh, hermeneutic, I, I should say. You know, you can find pieces of it throughout Scripture. Um, but when when I was first presented with this, you know, Shiloh brought up the idea, and and it's so funny with with many things like this. You you get presented, well, what about the Beatitudes? And and when you start considering it, you're like, well, that, why have I never why have I never even considered using this before? This is literally like Christ's seminal teachings. Why would I never have used this to interpret all other scripture? Like this is this is it. This is the central teaching of Christ. Why would I never have used this in order to understand every other scripture? Um, 
and and as I as I looked at it that way, uh, things there was a lot more that came to me, a lot more that presented itself. And it was kind of early on in the process. Shal and I were doing uh, Come Follow Me pro- uh, podcasts, and we were in the Book of Alma, and we came across the chapters of Ammonihah. And there were these beginning chapters of Alma as he is um, he's preparing to go to Ammonihah. He goes there, he gets kicked out, and then all the stuff all the process he goes through and then finally, you know, meets Amulek and and then they go out and preach. And I realized as I was reading through this, it was almost perfectly laid out. The Beatitudes were almost perfectly laid out exactly Alma's experience and process that he was going through to prepare to teach the people in Ammonihah almost in the exact order as Matthew presents it in the Beatitudes as well. I think there was like one thing that was flipped or something. And it was, it was, it, I, that was the moment, like I, I, I did that and we, we did the podcast and I talked about that. And when I saw that, I was like, I, I would have never, ever, I would have never seen this and, and gained a greater appreciation for the character of Alma what he was going through and how that related to what happened in Ammonihah if I had not come to it with that beatitude hermeneutic, right? Just like you guys were talking about. And so it really pulled something um, quite special out of those scriptures for me. So I, when I started adopting this hermeneutic and really searching for it and looking for it and, and having it jump out at me, I was reading in Isaiah and I was I was just shocked to see almost the exact same verbiage that you found in Christ's Beatitudes. It's as if he was quoting Old Testament prophets. And so I'm reading Isaiah chapter 6, and it's it's using the same language about, about mourning and comforting. Well, there is the, there's a parallel between the, the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, and Isaiah 61.1. Those who mourn, Isaiah 61, 2. The meek, Psalm 37, verse 11. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. The merciful, Exodus 34, 6. The pure in heart, Psalm 24, 3 through 5. The peacemakers, Psalm 34, 14. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, 2 Chronicles 24, 21. And those, you know, when when uh, others revile you and persecute you, Nehemiah nine twenty six and Jeremiah twenty two. So there, there, there are all these precedents in the Old Testament for this for this hermeneutic for well for the Beatitudes, and for it to be a hermeneutic that applies to the whole Old Testament or the whole Bible rather. I'll just read this one in Isaiah sixty one that uh, I was. I was thinking of and reading at the time when I adopted this hermeneutic. It says the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. And, you know, this experience has been repeated for me over and over, and perhaps in some of those footnoted scriptures that you mentioned, Christopher, but Really, just anywhere where I see those those words pop up, whether it's 
you know, peacemaker or mourning or comforting or kingdom of heaven or whatever those catchphrases are. Whenever I see that, it calls to mind the Beatitudes for me and and makes me, it just forces me to pay attention to that scripture for the message that it wants to communicate to me. One of the other sort of tangential hermeneutics that I've seen um, really bear out some some interesting things as we've gone through it um, was this concept of struggling. And um, it's it's almost like a meta hermeneutic because we <laughs> we we say we use hermeneutics and then we struggle with the scriptures with them. But but that in and of itself was something that I that I realized and and it was a theme that kept presenting itself as I as I looked for it in the scriptures. Some of this comes out in Alma chapter thirty six. You know he's reciting his experience to his son Helaman about his repentance process and all of the the struggling that he went through. All, you know, he comes to that verse where he says, and I just, as soon as I got hold of that thought, everything went away. You know, I just let go of, of all that other stuff and, and I was there with God and, and, and seeing him. And so then we came to one of the other ones, there was a bunch, but one of the other ones that stood out to me was uh, Doctrine and Covenant section 109, which is the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple. And you go through this prayer, and it's it's a very odd experience to kind of read through it with a nonviolent uh, hermeneutic, because uh, Joseph Smith kind of goes back and forth between things. First, he's he's talking to a vengeful God, and then he's talking to a forgiving God, and then he's talking to, you know, it's kind of back and forth on that. The vengeful God, then the forgiving God, and and then the God that that uh, condemns them for their wickedness, but the God that loves them. And so there's this back and forth all over in this prayer. And as I'm reading it, you know, I was like, wait, you know, he says this prayer was given to him by revelation. And and that's kind of where I, I, I kind of had this moment that I realized that the process of prayer was that revelation. You know, he he was, that prayer itself was this struggling with God. And he gave that to us. Like it almost as this pattern in, in the section 109 as this prayer, he kind of threw his heart out there and gave it as a prayer so that we could all kind of see this pattern. And and I say so that, but I, I, I wouldn't say that he, he'd even did it deliberately or consciously. I think that was just, that's just the way it goes when you pray, you know, it's this struggle. The uh, Bible dictionary talks about prayer as being the process by which the will of the child is brought into the line with the will of the parent. And to see that kind of play out in that was was really powerful for me um, and and recognizing that that not every uh, not every scripture and and experience explicitly stated by a prophet is necessarily prescriptive. He's, he's describing this process he's going through. And, and when he talks about the vengeful God, that's because that's his state of mind in that moment. But then you see, but then you see him change. And it's like, oh, that's the point, right? The point is that we repent. And you see that repentance happen within the prayer. And, and this really played out through uh, the first 40 or so chapters of the book of Alma, when we, like I said, we're going back to when we did the Come Follow Me on the Book of Mormon, 
And I really gained this love for the character and story of Alma the Younger because this whole thing is this back and forth struggle, repentance process for Alma arriving at at a point, somewhat tragically even, at the end of his life where he's speaking to his sons and he sees the Nephites about to go into another war, which his whole purpose and premise back at the beginning of the book was that he was going to go out and preach the gospel to prevent war. And now here he is at the end of his life, and there's about to start this huge war, like one of the biggest that ever happens. And you see, you see this changed character of, of Alma, and yet he comes to this point where he's still he, he's sorrowful, but he's at peace with the with reality. And and he's he's come there because of that that repentance process. And I love the metaphor of a struggle because it feels like Jacob wrestling or something like that. But I I also love the kind of the companion word to that struggle, which is transformation. And this is why Alma, I think, is at peace at the end of this, because at the beginning, you've got Nehor and Amlici and everything that he did had the intention of preventing war. But the way that he went about it, he recognized only much further on as being the cause for essentially all of the warfare that happened later on. And the reason I think he can look back with some, some sense of peace is because his intention was never for that stuff to happen. He just realizes after the fact, after, after the experience itself that he went about it the wrong way. And so by including that story in the, the book of Alma, what he really gives us is a gift of seeing the transformation of an individual from the beginning to the end. I see the exact same thing you do, and perhaps it's mirrored in Alma as as we see in Doctrine and Covenants with Joseph Smith from beginning to end. And it was kind of highlighted yeah. for me as we, we had that last come follow me. And you're reading the appendix, which is supposed to be right the the end of the Book of Commandments. But that's in 1831. Well, 1831 was early on in the story. And you have a different feel in 1840s the revelations that we get much later from Joseph than you did in 1831. And and so you go to the end of that, that section and you've got that verse 51 again, as I mentioned earlier, that's very kind of like vengeful, harsh, violent sounding. And you really get a sense in just a couple short chapters of the difference between the 1831 Joseph and, you know, the much later Joseph that was highlighted in just a couple sections prior to that. You know, there's something you said, Riley, that reminded me of another assumption that we take into not only the Book of Mormon, but also the Bible. And I'm going to bring up the Iliad too, because I think the same assumption goes into that one. And that is that that the violence that we're seeing is actually meant to somehow justify, maybe even glorify violence. And there's actually reason to think that if we look at the Iliad and maybe even in ancient ancient uh, scriptures like the Bible or the even the Book of Mormon has an ancient setting too. So you there is this sense of of the warrior and Moroni or uh, Captain Moroni is a great warrior and Mormon is a big fan, uh, is himself a military man and a big fan of Captain Moroni. And he tells us how great it is. And when we were recording last night, the, the last sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, Ben brought out how, was it you said, Ben, that he First, he praises Captain Moran as the greatest, and then... <laughs> Sorry, I don't remember what you're talking about. 
Well, then he then he goes into uh, all the other guys that are great too. Oh yeah, and then there's this guy and this guy and this guy. But and and the Iliad seems to be glorifying certainly Achilles and others, and yet every single person who dies in the Iliad is is not just a, a nameless, faceless person, but this is so-and-so, and he came from such-and-such such a place, and he had a wife and this many kids waiting for him back home on his farm, and now he's not going to go home. And you see this with every single person who dies in this battle, you know, in the Iliad, and you think, this is actually a nonviolent book. It's a book in which Homer is trying to show us the futility and the senselessness of war and the destructiveness of war. And the Bible can be read the same way. And, it, and, and when I say this, I mean that the authors of those books were trying to show us the futility of war. And the same with the Book of Mormon. And this is not the, generally the assumption that people take to these books. I challenge you to look at this this way, to, to, to see what the authors are really trying to tell you is war is futile. It's not the answer. Yeah, Chris, you know, it calls to mind for me the approach that we take to any other maybe non-scriptural tragedy. How, how, when have we ever read a tragedy and thought that's prescriptive? We always read those tragedies and we think to ourselves, oh, man, man that's, that's a tragedy. They never should have done it that way. And there's a fatal flaw, right? There's a character flaw. There's yeah, the, which by the way, the word for that 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 Aristotle uses is hamartia. Yeah, miss the word that we translate sin. Yeah. So I mean, you have tragic stories in you know from Shakespeare or from uh, classical uh, writings, and, and the tragedy is recognized by us because it's not necessarily scripture. But as soon as it becomes scripture, and we adopt this prescriptive mindset that it's okay or that we actually should do things that way. And we, we don't see the tragedy. It's like it goes right over to our heads. The Book of Mormon itself is a massive tragedy. Everybody dies. Yeah, everybody. And it's like Shakespeare in the end. So if everybody dies, why do we read this thing as if this is the way to do it? Why do we pick out these so-called heroic characters of, of warfare and military conquest and think that's how we should do it? It's wrong. Everybody dies. It's a tragedy. It's a what not to do, not a what to do. Which is not to say there were not good men, but that there is this tragic flaw, right? This, this, and really it shouldn't, I don't know that it should be translated tragic flaw and, and any more than sin should be understood with the kind of theological baggage with which it's laden. Again, the word that Aristotle uses in his poetics is hamartia, the same word. It's the archery term that's used that means missing the mark in the New Testament that we translate sin. It doesn't speak to the intention, right? The people might have had the best of intentions, just like Alma, as we mentioned, to safeguard his people and to safeguard the, the public peace and the public safety and whatever. But he just went about it the wrong way. And so what he gives us, he very easily could have left that part out of the story and, and vaunted himself up and made himself heroic figure. He doesn't do that on purpose. That's right. He leaves it in the story so that we can see what the tragic flaw is and learn from it. Like any good parent, he wants us to learn from his mistakes rather than our own. And one of the central parts of the Book of Mormon then is the mark that comes in Christ, right? And he comes in and he teaches the people and, and they live peaceably with each other, with, with no manner of ites, so to speak. You know, when we were talking about that concept, we got into to the us and them 
and the division and the Lamanites and the Nephites and the cultural differences and stuff like that. So that was a really interesting way of viewing it as well. You know, you, you've been talking about the, this different way of viewing scripture as a descriptive versus prescriptive. And, and that is sort of like this um, also sort of meta-hermeneutic that, that we use as we go along, right? To say, okay, you can just look at something and say, hey, is this descriptive or prescriptive? And your answer to that question, you know, the exegesis that you get out of that <laughs> is based on the hermeneutic you use to interpret that scripture. And you say, okay, what hermeneutic am I going to use to answer this question? And then whatever you then pull out of that, you know, would be the exegesis that kind of just bears out what we were talking about. And so it, it's it's a very useful question in that context. Yeah, the, the descriptive prescriptive so-called hermeneutic is really kind of a junior companion to the, the sure. bigger hermeneutic. I, I think that's what you're saying, because if we take that and, and put it, say, side by side with one of my favorite hermeneutics is the great commandment hermeneutic. Because I love what Jesus says about the two great commandments. Upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. If that isn't inviting you to use it as a hermeneutic, I don't know what is. That's a right. great invitation, right? right. Yeah. So if we take that, those two great commandments, and that becomes the thing upon which we judge all the law and the prophets, past, present, and future, then we apply that prescriptive versus descriptive approach along with that to great commandment hermeneutic and all of a sudden the scriptures start to unfold that's one of my absolute favorite ones to use yeah i love that it reminds me of what i read from uh, rob bell that he talked about the second greatest commandment where the lawyer comes to jesus and this is the story of the good samaritan right and we say good samaritan and that means something for us that oxymoronic that no one in jesus's time <laughs> would have would have thought, right? There is no such thing as a good Samaritan, right? So it, it, even even after the the lawyer presses Jesus, and he, it's all, because the question is, well, who's my neighbor? And and really, you find out in this conversation right away that that the reason the lawyer's trying to you know trip up Jesus and and having this cross examination conversation with him is that he disagrees with them on who his neighbor is. And then here comes the story of the good Samaritan. And even in the end, when Jesus asked, so who's your neighbor in this story? Who's the neighbor in this story to this, this victim? He couldn't say the Samaritan. He said, the one that showed mercy. He can't even name him. So those are the people that we're supposed to love. I love that Rob Bell brought out that out. I'd never considered that before, that he doesn't even say the, the Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, to call him by name. Because names, in a sense, uh, give us closeness, yeah, right? Yeah, humanizes they, they're, they're intimate, yeah. You know, another, um, another useful hermeneutic that I've used uh, a lot throughout, especially in the Doctrine and Covenants, has been this concept of an epistemological reality versus a metaphysical reality. And this was particularly useful um, when we talked about uh, Section 76 and the, the Kingdoms of Glory, and then also really any, any reference to and discussion of the the second coming of Christ. This first came up uh, when we were talking about the when we were in the Book of Mormon, and there were all these verses that were talking about, you know, the the judgment of God upon the wicked, and 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 how they how they feel about their sin, and all these things. And and I realized that like all of these verses weren't describing like a metaphysical state that 
um, was a a necessary consequence of people's decisions, but rather a an epistemological state of their perception, their self perception, their their self concept based on um, based on yeah how they viewed reality. Not necessarily what reality actually was, but their perception of reality. And so what it did, their their state of their perception, made them view God as a judgmental, condemnatory, vengeful type of God. And the, the process of repentance was the process by which they changed that idea. And became to view God in a different way. And often, you know, that that really opened something up for me because I had always looked at at our changing our, our view of God as the consequence or as the effect, not the cause of repentance. And it was almost like, okay, well, you know, if I if I stop sinning, then I will feel the love of God, right? And as I was reading the scriptures, I realized that it could be viewed, and again, it required a hermeneutic to bring to it, or else I may not have seen this before. It could be viewed in a different way. It could be viewed that as I saw God differently, that in and of itself was the cause. And the effect was repentance, or the effect, or maybe the the viewing God differently was repentance, but the effect was that all of a sudden, my my epistemological reality changed, um, and how I was experiencing. And so, this came to bear when we talked about Doctrine and Covenant seventy six, realizing that so much of what we experience um, on a day to day basis can be based on our perception of reality and of God and our relationship with Him, and and how that's conceptualized, you know, with within this plan of salvation. Um, was was given labels of celestial and terrestrial and telestial, but these were were simply um, methods of describing uh, a different mentality. Um, and while while we weren't we weren't dismissing the the idea that these were metaphysical states of being, that it was much more significant and meaningful, especially in the moment, for us to view these as epistemological states of being. I think it it bears defining these terms in this episode if we haven't defined them before and I, and I hope we have I really hope we have but if we haven't before now's a good time to do it so epistemology metaphysics what does this mean so metaphysics when something is metaphysical metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that deals with reality itself the nature of reality it's the branch that answers what is real and what is the nature of reality whereas epistemology is the branch that deals with how we know that or how we know in general how can we justify knowledge so when we when we talk about something having uh, an epistemological value rather than a metaphysical one, it's that we're not going to give things ontological status. And ontology is a, a sub-branch of metaphysics, right? It's the one that deals with being in and of itself. So things don't... There, there's so many things that, that we generally read in the scriptures, and this is not what we're doing, but what is generally done, and we're trying to do it differently where we give ontological status, this metaphysical reality to things that aren't ontological, that aren't metaphysical, that are just experiential. They're not part of the rea- of reality itself, but, the, but how we experience reality, and that's what we mean by epistemological. Can I give an example, Christopher? This popped in my mind as you were talking about this. So um, <laughs> when, we were, when I was kids with my, my siblings, my older brother 
<laughs> um, great older brother, by the way, but this is just what older brothers do. He he um, would would hold down one of my sisters and and hold her arms down and and just pretend like he was going to tickle her, right? Just like put his hands above going to tickle her, but wouldn't actually tickle her. And she would just squirm and laugh and like she was really being tickled, right? And so this is kind of what we mean by that. That was her epistemologically, she was experiencing that, that she was being tickled. But in reality, right, the actual reality of what was going on, he wasn't even touching her to, to tickle her, right? But just the anticipation of that reality was causing the same experience as if it was really happening. And so it was epistemological contact, not metaphysical contact. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I mean, and, 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 and again, that's just, that's, that's really part and parcel an analogy. I don't mean to minimize like the real psychological harm that, that things like that can do to torture a person. Right. You know, like, but, but again, um, it it just drives home the point that like, there is so much of our experience that really is just in our mind. Right. And, and so much of it that, that doesn't map to reality it's just our perception of reality and and the reality we experience can be changed by changed by by changing our perspective and and that's in a religious context in a spiritual context that's what we mean by repentance changing our perception of reality such that we view things how we view things the way god sees them and 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 actually maps out to actual reality. Yeah. So there's this this idea that we talked about in the last episode that we recorded on the last sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that it's it's sort of like our experience of the dread of something. The dread of something can have its own reality to it, where nothing's even happened, and we're just dreading that it's going to happen. And and there's the whole dread of doing. I can remember as an as a young entrepreneur. I just hated the paperwork of just invoicing. <laughs> and here I was struggling with, you know, with cash flow problems because I didn't invoice. I was making, you know, doing great in sales and I was, you know, I, I had these billable hours that I could have invoiced. And just the dread of doing just kept me in this problem with cash flow. And when I finally got around to invoicing, and actually it was harder because I hadn't done it. Now I had to do all this forensic work to figure out what was it I did and how, what do I need to invoice. And yet, even with all of that, once it's done, it's not that bad. It's I, I just kept thinking to myself, why do I keep doing this to myself? This isn't that bad. It's the dread of doing that's worse than the doing itself. Yeah, the contemplative approach to life in general is to live in the present and be aware of what's happening that's actually metaphysically happening to you in a moment. And the second we step out of that and start experiencing epistemological truths in air quotes it causes us sometimes to have anxiety or dread as you outlined um it can also cause us some positive feelings as well but yeah that's not to, like epistemological reality isn't there's there's nothing bad about it it's just it's it's how we perceive the world and 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 so a lot of it has to do with the choice so yeah and by the way there could be both a metaphysical and an epistemological reality yeah and both can be existent and, and and part of reality, and yet we're just distinguishing between the sure, two. Sure, sure. 
Well, guys, this has been a great conversation. We're we're at least an hour in, but uh, I wanted to give you any opportunity uh, that you might need to make some last comments about this idea of hermeneutics. I just wanted to say I thought we should have Ben on, uh, you know, to talk about this because again, with our sister podcast with Come Follow Me, uh, Ben and Shiloh have been recording this podcast for a couple years now, or at least a year and a half, right? You guys started halfway through the Book of Mormon, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then all the, went all the way through the the Doctrine and Covenants, and it was decided when Shiloh had to step aside to because he has to now go to class. He's been studying for his PhD in religious studies online thanks to the pandemic. This is something that he did intentionally. He signed up and got started so he wouldn't have to travel, but now he's coming to a point where he's going to have to travel when it's a three-hour trip down to to Claremont from where we live here in Bakersfield. So he's not going to be able to continue recording that podcast. And Ben and I will be doing that in, in January. We're looking forward to that. We're excited and and also overwhelmed and daunted and and humbled by the opportunity to, to discuss the Old Testament. We will be bringing the same approach to the Old Testament. And, and I'm most excited about that, about finding these possibilities, these the, the exegeses that will come out of these hermeneutics. And so thank you, Ben, for coming on the program. And, and is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Well, yeah, I, I would just say, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about finding God in this way in the scriptures, you know, seeing, seeing where that is. Um, we kind of came full circle with the epistemological thing and, and the anxiety and, and stuff because that actually fits in to the Sermon on the Mount and, and flows out of the Beatitudes, right? Christ says, you know, don't, don't worry about tomorrow, you know, sufficient is the day into the evil thereof. You know, to, you, you can take care of what needs to be taken care of today. You don't live in, in your anxieties of, of non-reality, right? And so it, it, it really fits in with that. I, I would just say that I wrote down probably half a dozen other uh, hermeneutics that we've used as we've, we've gone through the scriptures. And uh, there's probably unlimited ones. I'm learning new types of things all the time. Um, and uh, they, they've all been really useful. And so I, I would just uh, suggest to anyone that you start becoming conscious of what hermeneutic you're using to approach the scriptures. Um, and if, and as you examine that, it, make a decision about whether that's really the way that you want to approach the scriptures, whether that's really the God you believe in, right? Is is the hermeneutic you're using to read and understand the scriptures and connect with God, the God you're really looking for? And I think that is, is kind of what really, really rang for me. And I realized like, what God do I want to believe in? I mean, there may be the God that I do believe in when I really examine my thoughts, but then I start asking myself, what God do I want to believe in? What's the God that I really, really want to believe in? And that's the one I'm looking for. So I'd look for that in the scriptures. I love that. You know, to me, what you're describing, Ben, sounds a lot like what Thomas Merton said, or at least wanted to convey when he said, our ideas about God say more about us than they do about God. And, And for me, hermeneutics are a way for me to discover the God that, as you said, I want to be real. There's a, there's a God image that perhaps I've made and constructed in my mind. I want that God to be real. 
and you know I can I can just uh, confirm get my confirmation bias about that God, but what hermeneutics does for me is it stretches me, and I, I've learned more applying hermeneutics that maybe don't conform with my own ideas about God, and that's ultimately what's stretched me into you know what I believe about God now is is applying these various ideas so. Ben, I, I want to thank you as well for coming on. You know, your podcast focuses so much more on scriptural interpretation and and really digging into the scriptures, whereas ours is a little more holistic. And so to get your perspective on hermeneutics has been helpful, and I appreciate you coming on. There's just one more thing, just one more thing I'm going to say in closing, and that is uh, because you said, Riley, that there's what's what's actually going on, and this is where we want to be as contemplatives. And then there's the stories that we tell ourselves. And those sometimes just don't match up with the reality where, where nothing's wrong. Whereas Ben pointed out from the, from the teachings of Jesus that nothing is wrong, right? That, that sufficient is the, the day for the evil thereof. And so I just wanted to point listeners to an episode that Shiloh and I recorded when he came on as a guest co-host on this podcast on the stories that we tell ourselves. I don't remember the episode number, but that's the title, the stories we tell ourselves just a few episodes ago. You know, I guess one thing I'll say to the listener, as you begin to utilize these tools and or maybe you're well, you know, you're well practiced in it. I personally think this is my own opinion that these tools don't have to be holistic. They don't have to be the end all. If it works for a particular passage of scripture or if it works for a certain interpretation and provides some value to you, go ahead and run with it and and use it for as much value as it provides you. And then adopt another one and another one and, and keep keep learning, keep going. This is the essence of, of why we're here is to uh, offer more perspectives and contemplate those and see what we can learn about our God and about Jesus from putting the time into contemplating these ideas. Uh, I want to thank you, the listener, for following along with us and, and Christopher and Ben for joining us uh, today, especially uh, Ben uh, coming on as a guest. and. And we want to uh, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to the next episode. So for Latter-day Contemplation, I am Riley Risto. I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone.